Let's open the scriptures to the book of Esther, chapter 1. Our reading will be just the first nine verses, and verses 1 through 9 will also be the text which we consider. This is the word of God, Esther 1, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, He made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. Beloved congregation, we've begun our study of this book of Esther. Last week by fitting it in its historical context, fitting it into the timeline of covenant history. And you recall that the historical setting of Esther is in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the time when the Jewish exiles are returning from Babylon and the other places of their captivity after 70 years there, returning according to the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They returned after they were given permission by the first great king of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great, who published an edict permitting them to return home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Fifty years have passed, fifty years or so, since that edict of Cyrus, and one of the three big groups of Jews have returned home, the first group under Zerubbabel. To come will be a group under Ezra and Nehemiah. But now between that return of Zerubbabel and his people and the return of Ezra, we have the book of Esther, fixed in this very unstable and dangerous time for God's covenant people, as they yet wait for the Messiah, but wait as a people without a king of their own. 
No Jewish king sits on the throne in Jerusalem. They are under the weight of Persia, the world power of that day. And it's a perilous world for God's people. And so we come to the first verses of the first chapter of Ezra, or rather Esther. And verses 1 through 9 now immerse us. Immerse us into the setting for the rest of the book. The setting which is the royal palace of Ahasuerus, king of the Persians. The royal palace in Susa, or Shushan, as it is said in the Bible. And in that palace, we are brought to the court of the king's garden, where the first scene will unfold. And as we read these opening verses, we get what you can almost call a sensory overload. The sights, the sounds, the scents of luxury and power. That's the impression that these opening verses are intended to give us. We are here exposed to the glamour of the world power of that day. Glamorous as it is on the outside, we will soon be given a glimpse what is on the inside. Corruption to the core. But first we look at the glamour. We come to the opening scene of lavish feasting in the heart of the world power at that day. Here in Shushan the palace, the prince of this world, Satan himself, holds sway. And the prince of this world is plotting. The prince of this world is working with his evil eyes on God's people, and especially that descendant of David, Zerubbabel, far away in Jerusalem, and the people that went with him. Satan's plot enlists the service of none the less than the mighty world power of Persia. We're going to see that begin to unfold in these opening verses. And so, the text tonight, we're going to look at the glamour of man's kingdom. In God's providence, we have two sermons touching on kingdoms today. We talked a little bit about the kingdoms of this world and contrasted them with God's kingdom in the sermon this morning. And here with Ahasuerus' kingdom, we are given a preeminent example of man's kingdom. So let's consider this text under the theme, The Mighty King Displays His Excellent Majesty. We're first going to look at the great king himself, Ahasuerus. Secondly, we'll look at his grandiose display, his feasts. And then finally, back to the theme, the unseen king who is there, who is also the greater king. The opening scene unfolds. And the figure that looms at the forefront is the great king Ahasuerus. Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. That expression means this was during the time that Ahasuerus lived. But we can find additional meaning in that expression. This is how great the man was. That days were reckoned according to his name. These were the days of Ahasuerus. The king. And verse 1 goes on to describe this Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces. This is the Ahasuerus. Everybody knew Ahasuerus' name. He is the great king. 
He rules the known world. The known world that is from the point of view of the Middle East. His empire. It's the greatest yet. His empire reaches out with two mighty arms. It reaches far east and its one hand grabs hold of the western end of India. And it reaches out with its other arm and grabs Egypt into its embrace. Grabs even parts of Africa. And in between those reaching arms of Ahasuerus' mighty empire is 127 provinces. Those 127 provinces likely refer to sub-districts connected to a major city. You can think of them sort of like states. Our own nation, the mighty United States of America, has 50 states. Ahasuerus' empire had 127 states. This is the greatest empire the world had seen, and on top of it, commanding it, sits the King Ahasuerus. Even the mightiest empires of the past. Egypt and its pharaoh. Babylon and its golden king Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. They're just tributary states. Servants now. To this Ahasuerus. What a man. At his word, armies moved. At his word, nations bowed. That's the first thing we observe about this Ahasuerus as the text sets him before us. He is a man of excellent majesty as the world judges majesty. And we see his greatness first in the vastness of his empire and the extent of his rule. But now in the second place, we see the greatness of Ahasuerus in his character. Esther 1 depicts Ahasuerus as a man swollen in pride, swollen in pride over his own power and majesty, and he could be swollen like that because no one could say no to him. He was on the top of the world. You can get a sense of that in the language of verse 2. Not only the words said, But the tone those words convey to us on the pages of Scripture says something about Ahasuerus. Something of his character is expressed in verse 2. That in those days when the king, Ahasuerus, sat on the throne of his kingdom. That's how Ahasuerus saw himself. And that's how the world saw Ahasuerus too. He's the one and only Ahasuerus. He is the king. He is king over all kings. In fact, Ahasuerus and the Persian kings called themselves that. They called themselves the king of kings. They called themselves king of countries, of nations. He is the Ahasuerus, the king. And now in Shushan the palace, his luxurious winter home, he sits on the throne. There's no other throne in Ahasuerus' mind but his own. And any other throne set up throughout the world is a throne to be cast down and grabbed up into the arms of his empire. The throne of his kingdom. That's how this man sees the world. Not just Persia in media, not just Babylon in Egypt, but the world. His kingdom. The world is there for his taking. He is a man swollen with his own pride. He is a man infatuated with his own greatness, drunk with his own power. We see here that kingdom-building project of man 
at what you might say its greatest. A great man with great power. Seemingly limitless power to realize his vision. And he uses it all for his own glory. Swollen pride. Great king, Ahasuerus. Now in the third place, let's see that Ahasuerus was a great king and that his greatness is depicted for us in the text by the banquets that he hosts. That's really what most of the text is going to talk about. And we're going to save that for the second point, but let's merely note the lavishness of those banquets. The length of those banquets. And what that shows about the host of the banquets. This is how Ahasuerus saw himself. The king on top of the world who possessed everything and who can afford to throw a party such as we read of in the text at incalculable cost. This is a man for whom cost is of no concern. He can take whatever he wants. He has more than the human mind can fully wrap itself around. He is a man of seemingly limitless power. And if he wants to feast for 180 days, he will feast for 180 days. And the world will bow to his will and serve him and make it happen. A great, great king, this Ahasuerus. Now, before we go on to look at his banquet or banquets in more detail, let's step back and look at the greatness of this king and consider it for a moment. The text sets before us the great king Ahasuerus not so that we can admire him. Men would admire him. There are many Ahasuerus's in our day that men admire. Great men in politics, great men in science, great men in philosophy, great men in art, great men in music. You can think of so many of them. Who from a spiritual perspective look just like Ahasuerus. Is that really greatness? Is that really greatness? Remember, we observed in our introductory sermon that the book of Esther has some satirical elements about it. And that comes out here in the first nine verses of the text. The pomp and splendor and majesty and swollen pride of this king is so described and put in our face that we can't but laugh at it. What a show! That's the world. That's the world's greatness. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life as 1 John 2 verse 16 describes it. And it's empty, it's carnal. But that's what man sees as greatness. The sensory overload of this passage Shows us what the world prizes and what the kingdom of man is after and what our own sinful hearts crave. And thus the warning. We're tempted maybe to admire Ahasuerus. Look at this man's life. Wouldn't it be great to live the kind of life Ahasuerus does? Maybe we can cut out our own little empire in a certain part of life. Or maybe we can obtain wealth and set our hearts on that. No, no. His greatness is a sham. It's empty. It's carnal. It's the end game of the world and all of its working and building. It's what the world says, this is what life consists of. But it's not greatness. 
not real greatness. Passes away, perishes. As the proverb says, wealth so easily finds itself wings and flies away. Power is quickly replaced by a greater power. And history shows that. Indeed, Ahasuerus' own life will show that. This pompous king, as he hosts the banquet of the text, we know from history, he's also planning an invasion of Greece. That stubborn people that resisted his father and humiliated his father some ten or so years ago. He wanted to extend his reign into Europe. And the Greeks stood in his way. And so this Ahasuerus, this Xerxes, is planning a great invasion of Greece, which will be launched a few years after the events of the book of Esther. An invasion that will turn into a cataclysmic defeat for Ahasuerus and his Swollen pride will shrink down to size. Then by 465, proud Ahasuerus is assassinated by the captain of his guard. Greater power takes his place. What is greatness? What is greatness? What do you see as great? What do I see as great? Maybe Jesus can give us an example of true greatness. Indeed, he can in Matthew 11, verse 11. Here Jesus describes a truly great man, who we will notice right away was not great because of anything in him, but was great because of God's great work of grace in him. And this great man is the very opposite of Ahasuerus. Matthew 11, verse 11 Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he is least, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now you think of John the Baptist, the opposite of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus sitting on the throne of his kingdom in Shushan the palace. And then you have John the Baptist over here with a leathern girdle, with a shirt of camel's hair, in the wilderness by the Jordan River, preparing the way of the Lord, preaching the gospel, baptizing. That's greatness, Jesus says. In fact, there's been no greater man in covenant history than John the Baptist. There we get an image of what is truly great. And then Jesus goes on to say, even the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than he. Greatness in the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom is found in a perfected relationship with God. Serving him as God and Father and Lord. Serving him as a willing son. A joyful daughter. In the calling he's given you. Enjoying the riches of his grace. There's greatness. True greatness. So very different than the greatness of great King Ahasuerus. Now a second point of significance before we get to the banquets. Is to notice whom Ahasuerus represents and anticipates. This is important as we go forward in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus, the king, on the throne of his kingdom, with the arms of his empire, reaching east and west, we see what he's a picture of, do we not? He's a picture, a type of the Antichrist. 
Esther is not a standalone book. This opening scene is to be considered in the light of all of Scripture, in the light of all of covenant history. And the most important thing to see about Ahasuerus is not his great physical genealogy going back to Cyrus the Great, but is to see his spiritual genealogy, which can be traced back to Nebuchadnezzar, and to Pharaoh, and to Nimrod, and to Cain. The spiritual genealogy of the types of the Antichrist and the anti-Christian kingdom. He points to that man of sin who will come. Who will be Ahasuerus. But more than the Ahasuerus we see here on the pages of Esther. Esther, we're reminded is an episode in the age-long battle of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And that's what we're going to see play out on the pages of Esther. That's the great king. Given the character of this great king, as we have seen, it's no surprise that he wants to put on a grandiose display. In the third year of King Ahasuerus, verse 3 says, In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. And the rest of the text goes on to describe in elaborate detail that banquet, really two banquets. And it's astounding just to read it, is it not? This king hosts two back-to-back banquets, the first, and really the second two, of absurd length and absurd extravagance. Let's look at these two banquets now, and let's walk through the details of them. The first banquet was for the princes, and then after that one was done, the second banquet was for the people of the capital city, Shushan. The first, described in verses 3 and 4, was made unto all his princes and servants, the power of Persia and Media. This was a feast for the high-born, privileged, powerful, and favored of the king. Anybody who was somebody was there. It was for the officials who governed those 127 provinces. Some of them likely were not ethnic Medes or Persians. One of the things the Persians did is they kept some of the local government administration in place and, in place and absorbed it into their own. And that was a clever tactic of helping to keep the local population subdued and happy. They didn't just completely overthrow the present system of government, but absorbed it into their own. And so Ahasuerus has his court there at this feast. He has the officials that are closest to him. Some of them are named later in Esther chapter 1. And he calls all of the governors and important persons of the 127 provinces to come and to attend him at his feast. The power of media in Persia is gathered in Shushan the palace and displayed before it. And above it all and in command of it all is the great king on his throne. The end of verse 3, it said that all of these powers 
are before him, being before him. And the idea there is that he sent a personal summons to them. They were to appear before his face. There's no getting out of this. The king was making this feast. And you're going to be there, he said to his officials. That's quite something, isn't it? How do you move the important people of government of such a vast empire all to one place? while keeping that government functioning. It's an extraordinary task. It's possible that these governors of the provinces, these officials who came to the banquet, came in shifts so that they weren't all there at the same time. That's one possibility. That might be one reason why the banquet's length is 180 days, as the text says, just short of six months, half a year, an absurd length. It gave time for all of these officials, all of these people in power to come to the palace. Remember, they couldn't jump on an airplane and attend the king and then fly back home. They had to travel. Some of them from Egypt. Others from India. A long ways. They had to travel with their entourage, their guards, and all of the rest. This was quite a production. The whole Persian Empire was moved. And Ahasuerus liked to have it that way. Snap of his fingers. And the whole world moves for him. That's the first feast. A grandiose display of wealth and power. Then after that 180 days of feasting, the feast for the highborn, the powerful, the people who were somebodies in Persia, verses 5 through 9 go on to describe a second feast that's back to back with the first. In verse 5 we we read, and when these days were expired, that is the 180 days mentioned at the end of verse 4, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. The idea is not there that he just called the people that lived in his palace complex. Shushan or Susa is that capital city, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. So the idea is that he invited all the people of his capital city To come to this second banquet. Both unto the great and the small. The somebodies and the nobodies in Shushan, the city. And this party, as verse 5 says, lasted seven days and took place in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And then the verses that follow describe the ornate decorations and scenery of this second feast. Now there's a question here about the setting The question is, the setting of the garden, was that where the first feast took place, as well as the second? Or was it just the setting of the second? Was just the second feast in the garden? That could be, but one way to interpret the text is that both of these feasts took place in the palace garden, as described now in verses 6 through 8. And I tend to favor that interpretation simply because... The garden of Shushan the palace was the most exquisite place in the whole palace. In fact, that's something the Persians were famous for. Their gardens. And so it's the fitting setting for Ahasuerus to display his excellent majesty, his wealth and power in the beautiful garden of his palace. So I tend to think both of these feasts took place. There in the garden. 
the Persians called these gardens paradise gardens. In fact, our English word paradise is of Persian origin. It comes from the Persian word for a garden such as this. The garden in Shushan and in other Persian palace complexes was a walled garden. It was inside the palace complex. No one could intrude into it. It was the king's private garden. But this garden was huge. We can visualize it this way. Often, these paradise gardens were large rectangular gardens surrounded by beautiful walls with columns, pillars all along the side. And we get that impression from the text. It speaks of marble pillars. So you have this beautiful rectangular garden within the palace. And in the center of the garden is a fountain. And from that fountain, there are channels that go in all four of the cardinal directions. Like a cross through that rectangular garden. So that it's divided into four green spaces. And along those channels, there are all manner of flowers and fruit-bearing trees planted. So that this paradise garden was literally a sensory overload for everyone who walked into it. The cool breeze blew into the garden. There was shade from the walls and the trees. The aroma of flowers and ripe fruit would have met your senses. The sound of running water in the hot climate of Persia. Pure pleasure. Paradise, the Persians called it. Somewhere in some prominent place in this garden, you have a pavilion. And that's what's described really in verses 6 and 7. You'd have a pavilion that's open to the air with columns holding up a large roof. And beneath that pavilion, you'd have a marble pavement. And it's described here. It's made of all manner of Colorful marble stones, a mosaic probably, depicting some glorious conquest or story from the king's family history. The scene is that of unspeakable beauty. The priciest cloth is draped and hung from the marble pillars. Green, white, and blue, waving in the gentle breeze. And under that pavilion, where the king and his choice guests undoubtedly dined for these lengthy feasts, we're told there are beds. Beds of silver and of gold. And these beds were really couches. As we know, people at that time and in that part of the world often reclined as they dined. So there are couches provided for the king and his guests. What a grandiose display of wealth And power calculated to wow everyone who set foot in the palace. And then the text goes on to describe the drinking that went on. Especially at the second feast. Where all the people of Susa were welcomed into this garden. To behold the wealth and power of their king. And to adore him. We're not told anything about the food. The food must have been extraordinary too. But the wine is especially emphasized in verse 7. 
And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. The serving vessels were pure gold. The drinking vessels were pure gold. But then the text describes this also. Every single one of them was different. There were no mass-produced silverware in the king's palace. Each and every one was crafted by an artist for the king. A grandiose display of his wealth that would have wowed the people. And what goes in those golden drinking vessels but the king's own wine? And in abundance. Not just any wine, but the king's wine. The wine from the king's own cellars. And here too we see the wealth of this man. That he has enough wine in his own royal cellars to give abundant drink to the population of his city. What a display. The wine was in abundance according to the state of the king. And the meaning of that expression is according to the generosity of the king. We have a Hasuerus here. The benevolent tyrant, showing himself to be generous to his people by letting the wine flow freely. And so we read in verse 8, And the drinking was according to law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So generous is King Ahasuerus that he even passes by the custom that was held by the Persians, that when you banqueted or sat at meat with the king, you would always drink when the king would drink from his cup. And so you had to watch the king, and when he drank, you drank. Ahasuerus, that custom can be set aside. Everyone can drink when they want and however much they want. What a generous king. In fact, he, he makes a new law just for this feast. What a man of power. He can do whatever he wants. He makes a law that every man not be compelled and that the officers of his house see to it that every man should do according to his own pleasure. Ah, isn't that something? Legislated lawlessness. Do as you want. It doesn't take much imagination to envision how this went over with the people of Shushan. What's the point? What's the point of all of this? We've walked through the details of this feast described here. And by the way, the Bible goes into the greatest detail here in Esther chapter 1 than anywhere else on its pages. The greatest detail in describing a kingly feast. It's impressing us with how grandiose, over-the-top, extravagant this man's feast was. And it's all a display. And here's the point of it. Ahasuerus, as he sits on the throne of his kingdom, swollen with his pride, he wants to flaunt and to flex. That's what this grandiose display is. It's the kingdom of man centralized in its head, the picture of Antichrist, flaunting his wealth and flexing his muscle, his power. We see both of those things here, don't we? 
Why the extravagance? Why the mind-boggling luxury to display how great this king is? He shows his wealth by wasting it. Pouring the royal cellars down the throats of his people without restraint. Sparing no expense. He just held a feast for his kingdom that lasted 180 days. Why not have another week? A lavish display of wealth. He flaunts it. And the whole purpose of this is to glorify himself. To garner praise for himself. And that's what the kingdom of man is all about. That's what we want to see. That's what man's kingdoms in this world are all about. The glory of man. Glory thievery. Not unto thee, O God, but unto me be glory given. That was Ahasuerus' song. That's why verse 4 captures really the whole purpose of this banquet. And it uses so many extra words to stress the pomp of the occasion and the grandioseness of this display. He showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. That's what it's all about. Flaunting his wealth and power. It's Satan's sin reenacted. Isaiah 14, verse 14. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. But there's a more devious purpose to this banquet. That devious purpose is flexing. Flexing his muscle. Projecting his Power, And that's also how the kingdoms of this world work. They rule by power. Top down power. Jesus put it best in Mark 10 verse 42. When he says that the great ones among the Gentiles. And here's the greatest one among the Gentiles. The great ones among the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. And that's what this banquet was all about. It was the projection of power. One of the goals likely was to garner support for his planned invasion of Greece. He wanted to show his generals. He wanted to show all of the powerful men of Persia how great he was. How can those backward Greeks stand up against the combined might of Persia and the king Ahasuerus? And so this banquet was for the purpose of projecting his power unifying his kingdom to do his bidding so that he could extend his empire and reach that left hand of empire now into Greece. See, worldly power, there's never enough of it. Man's never content. It's the way of every worldly kingdom and the way of every earthly kingdom building effort. It always wants more. It's because sin is at the core. And sin always wants more. Sin is never satisfied. Ahasuerus could conquer the whole world and he still wouldn't be satisfied. But also the king throws this banquet in order to impress his power down upon his subjects, upon his rulers, so that they fear him and bend to his will. This man with such wealth, such power, how can he possibly be resisted? We must obey him and worship him. 
He's the God King. Just consider a couple of details about the feast and you see this projection of power. Go back to the ridiculous length of the first banquet. 180 days. All right. Surely many of those Persian officials were excited to feast with the king. But 180 days? We got other things to do, you know. These 127 provinces aren't going to rule themselves. And Ahasuerus, as it were, says, Well, that's your problem. Come. You see to your own house. Make sure things get done in your absence. Doesn't matter how far you have to travel. Doesn't matter what hardship. And in fact, I'll keep you here for half a year if I want. I say come, and you come. Power. Oppressive. Power. Control. That's what Ahasuerus is doing here. That lavish feast looks so soft and generous, but the iron fist of a tyrant is behind it. And you see that in his generosity too. There's a second example, the free-flowing wine. Oh, how benevolent Ahasuerus seems. Well, why is he so benevolent? Not because he really cares about his subjects. We'll see that later in the book of Esther when Haman comes with his plot to exterminate the Jews. All Haman has to say is, there's this people in your empire that are different. They follow different laws. The king doesn't even bother to acquaint himself with who these people are. He just, with a wave of a hand, says, yeah, kill them all off. He doesn't care. He's a tyrant. A wicked man swollen with his own pride, drunk with his own power, infatuated with his own glory. This benevolence is a show. It's meant to control. In it, he says to his people, look how great I am. If I like you, I can give you paradise. Come look at my garden. Come drink my wine. Isn't that the spirit of Antichrist? Indeed it is. The spirit of Antichrist that works in the world and is at work in all of the kingdoms of this world and is as a siren call to God's people. Come, join our kingdom. Drink of our wine. We will give you paradise, wealth, riches, power, all that the human heart can desire. Just obey Just worship me. Oh, that's Satan, isn't it? Satan with Jesus in the wilderness, the temptations, the last of those temptations. Behold the kingdoms of the world. I'll give it all to you if you but bow and worship to me. And that's the same temptation that Satan is constantly bombarding the church with. Through world powers, through culture, through all of the avenues at his disposal, Satan whispers to us, I'll give you paradise if you bend the knee to me. We see Antichrist in Ahasuerus, and we see the grinning maw of Satan behind Ahasuerus' face. As we look at Ahasuerus and his display, 
his projection of power, we see more of the spirit of our age, do we not? And a warning to us to resist the spirit of our age. His law during that seven day feast was that all should do according to every man's pleasure. That's what Antichrist will do. He will destroy with peace. He will destroy by giving people what they want. By giving them everything they think they want. Antichrist's great empire. Oh, what wealth. What privileges. He will be able to bestow on all who are loyal to him. He'll destroy them by giving them what they want. We have here legislated lawlessness. The one law of the feast was that nobody compels you to have little or a lot of the wine. Legislated lawlessness. And that's our day and age, is it not? The spirit of Ahasuerus, the spirit of Antichrist. We can see it in our society. Law is there to protect my right to do as I please. Law should be there to protect my right to kill my children in the womb. The law should be there to protect my rights to be respected and catered to. When my decisions are insane and against nature, I say something, I say that I am something which I was not born as, and you better conform. Legislated lawlessness. That's the spirit of our age. And that's a spirit that appeals to us. Because at the core of our sinful flesh is that desire to be as God, determining for myself good and evil. And that's what Ahasuerus does. He gives his people a taste of being able to determine for themselves. But he dupes them. And that's what every mighty oppressive leader does. He dupes his people into thinking that they're free when really they're under his control. That's what Satan tries to do with us too. He says, you can be free. You can live the life you want to live. Just follow me. Just disobey God. Just turn away from that old dusty book, the Bible. Just leave that church which is so old-fashioned, so out of date, out of touch with the times. Join me in my kingdom. I'll give you paradise. I'll let you determine good and evil for yourself. The only law in my kingdom says, Satan says, the only law is that nobody should say no to you when you do what you want to do. What a picture of corrupt power. Picture of Antichrist we have here in Ahasuerus and his display. This is the setting then for the rest of the book of Esther. This is the man on the throne of the known world. And now we see how perilous the situation of God's people is. You have this whimsical tyrant who can speak a word and nations move. This whimsical tyrant who with the wave of a hand can exterminate thousands and thousands of people. You have this man who is the image bearer of Satan, really Satan's puppet, ruling over the world. And you have God's little church, 
His little, weak, defenseless people in that backwater country of the Persian Empire called Judea trying to rebuild their temple. What chances does the church have? What chances do God's people have in that day? And the same is true today. What is the church? What are God's people compared to the titanic powers of this world? The spirit of Antichrist that is at work in them. The spirit of lawlessness that we see in our day. A spirit that will tolerate anything except the Christian faith and the word of God and morality as defined by the Ten Commandments. How does the church survive in such a world under the thumb of such oppressive power? Now we have to remember the unseen king. There's another king in Shushan the palace. The unseen king, who's the greater king, indeed the greatest king and the only king. He's never mentioned because neither Ahasuerus or his guests take any thought of him. But the unseen king is there working his purposes and that's what we're going to see as we continue through Esther 1 and 2 and the rest of the book. The unseen king working even at this corrupt core of world power, using the smallest of things to preserve and to protect his church, so that the iron fist of the tyrant doesn't come down upon them, so that all things are made subservient to their salvation. The unseen king is there. That unseen king is the greater king. And that unseen king is our king by grace. And what a wonder It is to be able to say that and think about what it means because the unseen king, the greater king, is the complete opposite of Ahasuerus. Everything Ahasuerus is, God is not. Ahasuerus, the petty tyrant, the projector of power, the man swollen with his own pride, the man who cares nothing for his subjects, It's the opposite of our God who reigns and rules by His grace for the good of His people whom He loves and whom He's purchased to Himself with the blood of His only begotten Son. Our God is in the heavens whose name is Jehovah and His throne is set in the heavens and it shall not be moved. How the Psalms extol God our King. He is a great God. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, He is a great King above all gods. Ahasuerus thought he was God. He's a speck on the footstool of the great King. Jehovah God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter is a right scepter. Daniel 2 verse 21 ascribes to God the power over all the kings of the earth. He is the one who sets up kings. He is the one who removes kings. God is the one who made the Persian Empire the power that it was. In God's good timing, he chopped off the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And he brought Cyrus the Great, the first king of those silver arms and chest. He brought him to power. God put Ahasuerus on his throne in Shushan. And God will use Ahasuerus to do his bidding. And when the time for Ahasuerus' judgment comes, Ahasuerus will die on the end of Artabanus' blade. 
the unseen greater king who rules in the heavens, rules over all. And even the heart of the king, as wise Solomon knew very well even about himself, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and as rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. That's the unseen king in his unseen hand, which is here in Shushan the palace at the corrupt core of world power. And that's true of our day too. The centers of world power in Washington, in the capitals of every nation, in the dark places of the world, everywhere God is there, His hand is there. Nothing escapes His notice. Nothing is outside of His control. He is at work. And our King, He's omnipotent. We sang those beautiful words, Jehovah sits enthroned in majesty most bright, apparelled in omnipotence and girded round with might. Ahasuerus was a fool, thinking himself omnipotent. He would soon be cut down to size, as every man will be, and as every kingdom of man will be, and as Antichrist will be. Jehovah alone is omnipotent. All power is his. All power is at his service. And he rules us omnipotently. But not with the raw power that we see Ahasuerus flexing in our text, but he rules us with that benevolent, truly benevolent power of his grace in Jesus Christ, saving power, exemplified in Christ himself, who is the king who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to his subjects and give his life as a ransom for many, so that from his cross might come that stream of mercy That brings us to the real paradise. The real paradise. Better even than Eden. The kingdom of God made perfect. The covenant consummated. The new heavens and the new earth. God dwelling with men. In Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Christ the King. Through his own sacrifice. His own love. His own grace. Gives us true paradise. Pictured at this table, in the bread and the wine, feast, feast. Oh, so very different from Ahasuerus' feast. None of the marble, none of the glorious hangings and banners. None of the display of pomp and splendor, but in the simplicity of the bread and wine, we see something far more glorious, rich and beautiful and grand than anything Ahasuerus could put together. We see the body and blood of the Lord, His body broken for us, His blood shed for the remission of your sins and mine to bring you to paradise. The new Eden, new heavens and the earth, far better than Ahasuerus' garden, which will be the setting of the banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's not going to end after 187 days, but will be forever. Wedding feast at the heart of which is fellowship with God and with one another. There we'll taste all of the sweetness and the riches 
of God's goodness. That's our kingdom, our paradise. Be represented to us in the supper. Let us come. True hunger and thirst to the table to feast with the greatest of all kings. Amen. Our faithful God, our heavenly Father, we thank thee for this word, for its exposure of the powers of this world, and for its display of thy awesome power and goodness as our king. Bless this word to our hearts, and may it be used also to prepare us to come to thy table and to partake of thy good gifts to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.